Well, happy Father's Day. I want to describe a perfect storm. Some of you watched that movie a while back. Three weather systems all converged and created what I guess in the nor'eastern area of our world uh, country, uh, the, the perfect storm. Um, for me, it was uh, packing up downsizing and getting old, and it, it all took place in my move, in the weeks up to my move here to Richland, California from uh, the central coast of California. So on the garage floor, I created two piles. Um, one was the keep it pile, and one is the, the let it go pile. And in the keep it pile, we've got things that still have value. They have uh, value right now, or they have at least potential value. Um, maybe it's practical value, tools, books, you know, furniture, things like that, that I'm currently still using, so it, it must have a value. Um, there was also some sentimental things in there, photos, mementos. Um, ask, ask my wife, I, I've got a box about that big, and, and, and it's not really that big, but I guard it jealously. I, I always know where it is in the house, and, and, and everything in that box has got a long story. It's got a, a very, very personal, deep attachment um, to it. Um, and then we have eternal things in that keep it pile. You know, draws me to things greater than myself. And, and if you visit the church, if you ever <laughs> can get back to church, um, in my office you'll see a shelf of Bibles. And, and that was in, crucially important to me um, because it represents my faith history, my, my faith family, my, my faith ancestors. I mean, I've got Bibles from my great-granddad, my great-aunts and uncles, and my grandparents, and, and then many of them were Nazarene preachers, and, and, and they're all marked up like crazy. Um, and, and I keep those, and I, I keep them where I can see them in my office to, to kind of keep me on track when I sometimes, you know, veer off the mark. We learned last week a little bit of what that meant. In essence, this is the pile of me, <laughs> right? And then there's the let it go pile. No current value. From what I can tell, it has no potential value. I kind of call it the pain and drama pile because it's the pile of broken dreams, of misguided dreams, maybe silly dreams, maybe just unrealized dreams and, and aspirations in my life. And, and again, it's so emotional for me because I... Had a lot of sports equipment in, in this last move, and I, I know I was trying to, I don't know if I was deliberately doing it, um, but I had a couple skateboards, and I had kind of put them into the keep it pile, and Diane came out into the garage and said, what are, what are those skateboards doing in that pile? I have no idea what you're talking about, honey. Well, they quickly made it to the let it go pile, and someone in Watsonville uh, got my two skateboards. Um, very emotional. I mean, it, it, it was difficult. Um, and in earlier moves, when I was younger, and this might be true for you too, the keep it pile was always huge, right? Because everything was about me. Well, at least I, I was still building my dreams and my, my achievements, my, things that I wanted to do in life. So there was always potential value in that pile, and I kept it, and it, and it was huge. But on this move, um, the keep it pile got a lot smaller, and, and the let it go pile got really big. Um, and again, this was rather painful because it was the no longer me piled. Things, the ways that I, I saw myself, images that I had of myself, um, I kind of had to let go of. And again, painful because let it go meant letting them go. Things that I'd spent quite a bit of time and energy, thought, prayer, uh, but, but never realized, never got to realize 
Might be a better way of putting it. During this process, my daughter Amanda, my older daughter, she said something that, that, that greatly affected the size of these two piles. Um, I think that all dads need to hear this morning. Well, every, everybody needs to hear this um, because it relates to the things that we keep in life and the things that we pass on to our daughters. I have two daughters. Or even to our granddaughters. I have two granddaughters. Here's what she said. Don't keep any garbage that I'll just have to throw out when you die. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have ever heard that from your kids and you're saving them your, your precious moments or your plate collection or your, you know, your, your whatever and they're just thinking, and when they die, that's going straight to Goodwill <laughs> or, the, or the garbage. So these two piles, they, you know, one representing uh, you know, my past or our past, Diane and I, and, and one representing our future, you know, the, the, the keep it pile. And maybe on Father's Day, um, you're wondering, uh, as a father, maybe just as, as, as anybody, um, what am I passing on to my kids? What, what am I passing on to my, my grandkids? And if you, hopefully, if you weren't thinking about this, you, you are now. Um, <laughs> uh, the one pile left, see, it doesn't just represent our future, mine and Diane's um, future. What we decide to pass on and what we decide to keep will inevitably affect the future of our kids our grandkids, and really anybody that, that's watching and, and paying any kind of attention to what we're doing, all depending on what we pass on and what we, we don't pass on. So let's talk about building temples and kingdoms this morning. That's kind of my title for, our, for my message this morning. In the Old Testament, constructing a physical tabernacle, which was that uh, mobile temple, I guess we would call it, as they spent 40 years in disobedience, wandering around the desert, moaning and groaning, uh, I, we can't bag on them because we're, we're not any better. <laughs> in the Old Testament, constructing that physical tabernacle while wandering around in the desert or the, you know, the wilderness and then building that more permanent physical temple once they got settled um, in Jerusalem, um, those temples really reflected an eternal spiritual truth that, that, that's revealed in the New Testament. And that is this, that the physical temples that we build with our hands, you know, the piles of me, reveal the spiritual kingdom ruling in our hearts. Right? There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of the world. The Bible calls it a lot of different things. The kingdom of the flesh. Um, we'll just call it the kingdom of me. And within that scriptural truth lies a huge dad truth that, it, that in many different ways our culture and probably our experiences, your experiences, um, might seem to contradict. And that's this, that dads, listen, what you do matters. You heard me. If you were going to the bathroom, I'll give you a minute to come back, okay? Um, what you do matters. And if, I don't, if you don't hear anything else, if you check out at this point and fall asleep because that's what dads do, what you do matters despite what our culture tells you. Until very recently, Western culture overwhelmingly decided that if a mom and dad break up, well, the, the mom ought to get the kids, right? Um, and, and that's kind of changing. Uh, and I'm not looking to devalue moms here. All I'm asking us to do really is kind of maybe reevaluate dads um, and their incredible importance. Um, but consider this. Dads are a son's first hero. Dads shape a, like an indelible image in the minds of our sons of, of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a godly man. Um, by the things that we do, probably more than the things that we say. And dads are a daughter's, more often than not, a daughter's first boyfriend. <laughs> dads, we, 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 we have this, this, it's not an ability, it's just, it just happens. We shape an indelible image of a daughter's value 
and how a man or a future husband should value them. And if your experience is anything like mine, dads, what you do matters despite what your experience tells you. Um, I don't know how many of you dads, I hope all of you will be honest, (laughs) you've used the phrase, go ask mom. Anybody in the sound booth? Anybody? Uh, Go ask mom. Yeah, yeah, okay. The thing is, I've used that a lot, and kids pick up very quickly, very young. Um, A certain grandpa discussing childbirth with his granddaughter. Apparently, she had, in school, watched childbirth. And she tells grandpa, I'm not going to have children, grandpa. She announced, it's too hard. It's too painful. It's too bad. And grandpa says, yes, it hurts, but the pain goes away, and you're left with this beautiful child, and you decide that it's worth it. And the grandpa, granddaughter looks grandpa in the eyes and says, you're a man. What do you know? Right? My daughters have learned that. Uh, you know, if you ask dad a question, he's, he's either going to make a mountain out of a molehill or he's going to make a molehill out of a mountain. He just, you know, don't bother asking dad, what do, what do dads know? <laughs> You're a man, what do you know? Luckily, it turns out what you do is more important than what you know. And that's good because do, don't think, um, is how we all roll, right? This is the way guys operate. Um, this is how Americans Funniest Home Videos stayed in business for so long, um, dudes and dads <laughs> dominate that, that TV show. And again, it's no surprise that if, in general, women are much better communicators, they're much more comfortable with expressing their feelings and the things that they're talking about. Guys, we tend to clam up and, and, and go to our, our man caves, you know. And, um, and, and if it's true that uh, guys tend to be, in general, a, a little bit hyper-focused on achievements, personal achievements and, 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 and accomplishments and, and things like that, um, it, it should be no surprise that we gain insights from mom by discussion, but we gain insights from dad by watching. And this is particularly true when it comes to passing on our faith. Check out this next slide. Researchers in Switzerland, they examined uh, uh, parents' religious habits I'm trying to figure out how, what were the key factors in transmitting their faith to their offspring, to their kids. And they studied different variables, but one critical factor just showed up. I mean, and they were rather surprised. Um, the practices of dad determine whether children acquire their own faith. And the shocker is the habits of mom have comparatively, okay, hear me clearly, comparatively little influence over their kids' future faith. If you look at this, this chart right there, mom's attending regular, that's, that's the variable that doesn't change. And in the two categories, dad, the variable changes, right? So in the first category, dad attends occasionally while mom attends regularly, 3%. Um, faith is passed on only 3% of the time, abysmal. And then when dad never attends, it drops by only 1%. But when dads are faithful, watch this. Again, on this chart, the variable is dad attends regularly in all three categories. And in the first category, if both mom and dad attend together regularly, 33%, uh, faith is passed on to 33% of the time. And if, again, if dads attend regularly, which is the constant, and, and mom attends only occasionally, uh, it rises to 38%. And when moms, or excuse me, dads attend regularly, but mom never attends, it, it keeps going up. Did you all see that? It, it, it seems... Right? How is that happening? Um, so what happens is if Papa doesn't go to church, chances are very slim that their children won't become 
regular worshipers. Because if kids see religion as a mom thing, they're more likely to become disenchanted. And here's, I believe, what happens. This was uh, done by some studies out of Fuller Institute. Uh, Clark Chap, I believe was his name, that did this study. And there's this idea that, that in life you have a mom pole, and this is for the kids kind of a... Um, for you adults, but you have a mom pole and you have a dad pole, and it's like a tightrope, and there's a wire between the two. And the job of mom and dad is to get your kids from the mom pole, which represents everything about childhood, everything um, about young and, 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 and need and, and all of that. Um, and our job as parents is to get them safely from the mom pole to the dad pole because the dad poles represent adulthood. Right? In, traditionally, this is, this is rapidly changing, but dad goes off to work. Dad, you know, has got a kind of a different image as the kids are growing up and they're watching what mom and dad do. Um, and so as they make their way across this, this tightrope from mom pole to dad pole in, in religious ideas here in, in the passing on of spirituality, if it's just mom going to the church to the child, that represents a childish thing. That, re that represents a not moving on from childhood to adulthood. And so anything that mom does solely, I guess, you know, that's just all about mom and in a child's mind as they grow older that represents childhood and, and childish things, maybe. But if dad's doing it, like kids rally around what, what dad's doing because, again, he represents where they want to be. They want to be adults. Kids, don't rush. It's not, it's not all it's cracked up to be, right? Um, but listen, if dad leads by example, the children are 22 times more likely, 22 times more likely to become lifelong followers of Jesus. The bottom line, in spiritual matters, kids take their cues from dad. I, I, again, I'm not devaluing mom's role here. Um, both parents are vital. I'm just saying that in spiritual matters, more is caught than taught. And again, I, I'm, not, I'm certainly not devaluing teaching, and, you know, and education, but in spiritual matters, what we see is um, actions apparently seem to uh, speak much louder than words. And nowhere in Scripture is this more pronounced or more evidence than in the life of King David. If you're sitting at home and you're quietly thinking, wow, my family is, is a mess, spend some time in First and Second Samuel Right? You will praise God when you're done that your family doesn't come close to King David's family. What, what a disaster. It was just a disaster. All, nearly from beginning to end, just one disaster after another, the way he raised his kids. And again, we read in Scripture, he always says the right things, but as we read in Scripture, he very seldom did the right thing, did the right thing, but he, he always came back around, and that's why God calls him, you know, a man after my own face, after my own heart. Um, he always repented, and like he had to repent a lot, <laughs> a lot. So I want to zero in on a time of relative peace in Israel. There have been lots of wars before what we're going to read about this morning. There's going to be lots of wars afterwards in the life of King David. So starting in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, it says this, verses 1 and 2. After the Lord was settled in, excuse me, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And as you jump into 2 Samuel, maybe you start in chapter 5, chapter 6, you, you, you quickly gather that he's finally defeated the Philistines um, and he's brought the ark of the covenant to the newly built capital of Jerusalem. Uh, becomes known as the city of David because that's where he makes his capital. 
David's thoughts now turn to building a temple for the Lord. And, and again, I, I encourage you, go home and read some of chapter 5, chapter 6, because the whole journey of the ark getting to Jerusalem is a crazy, <laughs> scary uh, event. Um, that's part of your homework. I'm going to give you a little bit more a little bit later on here. The discrepancy between his house and the house of God bothered David. Right? How, why should the king's house be a palace and why should God's house just be a tent? And this bothered David, right? It kind of weighed on his mind. Continue reading in verse 3. Nathan replied to the king, hey, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Right? At first, Nathan encourages David to follow through on his desire to build a temple. I mean, everything that David does seems to be blessed of the Lord, blessed by the Lord. And uh, he, he, you know, he just seems to, in his kingly pursuits, not necessarily in his family pursuits, but in his kingly pursuits, he, he really can't do wrong. So Nathan's like, right, have at it. I can't imagine God saying no. Um, little side note there, you probably ought to check with God before you jump on a lot of things. But that's not where I'm going this morning. So... That night, though, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, changing their plans. Verse 4 and 5, it says this, but that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Ah, see, right? Saying, so go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Now, I want you to keep an eye on those two words. They're going to kind of, we're going to revisit them. They're going to kind of keep showing up here on your screen um, in several different passages. A house to dwell in. Um, something's afoot when, when Scripture repeats and repeats and, and repeats these words or, or phrases. Something's going on here. So God asks really a rhetorical question, and the answer being, as we're going to find out, a hard no. No, David, you don't get to build a temple to me. So why didn't God allow David to build the temple? Most folks correctly answer, and I'm not going to give away that answer, most folks correctly answer, but only with information, check this out, given to us in Scripture nearly 600 years after the events described in First and Second Samuel. It wasn't until the writers of First and Second Chronicle, um, when, the, when the Israelites or the Jewish people have returned from captivity from Babylon, that were given this additional piece of information. Basically, around 1,000 years before Christ, uh, these are the events that are going on. They're recorded about 100 years later, 900 years before Christ. Um, possibly from the records of Samuel, Nathan, Gad. Uh, we find this out in First Chronicles 29, 29. Check that out on your own. Um, but in those 600 years, Israel has moved from being one of the greatest powers in the area um, to being a laughingstock. I mean, literally surviving at the whim of their surrounding neighbors, the nations surrounding them. So in this timeline, I'm going to got to keep, get my teacher on here. I've been a teacher for too long, so I love maps and timelines, right? Very visual information. So we have the reigns of King David, Saul, and Solomon, the three kings, the only three kings they had when the, the nation was united. Um, and then about 100 years, First and Second Samuel written. Now then you, you, you go through about 500 years, and if you look very closely, First and Second Kings is written to a people in exile, Right? What, what's on their mind and really what First and Second Kings speaks into this thing that's on their mind um, is how and why did we end up here? Where did we go wrong? Um, and, and, and just kind of a spoiler alert, um, it had to do a lot with idols. And I can tell you right now, when they came back from captivity, they never had that problem again. So, so God's, God's, God's plan, his purpose, whatever he, you know, whatever he was up to, boy, boy, oh, boy, it worked because they gave up their idols wholesale, 
big time. And then First and Second Chronicles is written again after their return from exile. And the question that the people are asking is, um, if or do we still have a place in God's plan, right? We, we blew it. We know it. Um, but do you still love us? Do we, do we still get to be the chosen people? And this is really the beginning of what we would call a messianic literature um, discussion. This, this is when God reveals in, in, in the fullness of time this idea of a, a Messiah with a capital M, like as in the only, one and only son of God. Now, now, now before this time, there had been the, the idea of Messiah with a small m, which simply means savior in, in Hebrew, uh, anointed ones. Um, King David is called uh, Messiah. Um, the land uh, is called Messiah. The temple, I mean, there's a, even Cyrus, right? The king of, of, of Persia, who is the one that, that released them from captivity because he had taken over the Babylonians and long story. Um, but he's even called Messiah because his actions saved the people. Um, but as they return, God introduces this idea. And, and again, back in the time of David, they saw no need for a Messiah because they didn't need to be rescued. In the time of King David, like they were they were the nation, right? There was no, oh, we got to have somebody come save us. Like King David's doing a great job. We've never been so big and powerful in, in all of our history. And um, this idea of the, the Messiah with a capital M simply didn't exist at that point. Now, each point along the way, at each point along the way, the writers reinterpret, listen very carefully to this, they reinterpret past events in light of what's happening to them now. Now, this is nothing new. This is what Jesus did in the night before he was crucified. We call it the, the Passover. Well, he reinterpreted the Passover. Originally, it meant them escaping from slavery in Egypt, crossing over the, the Red Sea, um, passing over the, the angel of death, uh, would pass over that, the house of an um, Israelite if they had the, the blood of the lamb on, on their doorposts. Um, so he reinterprets that in light of himself. Peter and Paul, as you read through their letters, they're constantly reinterpreting they're not telling a different story. They're not like someone made a mistake in the past and we're correcting anything. Um, but a fuller, more complete picture has, has developed. God has revealed more information um, to them. And again, we all do this. We, an event happens and we, right, in the heat of the moment, we, we're, we're kind of lost. Everything's in a swirl. It's like being kind of in a, in a typhoon or a tornado. But, but, but as the days, years, months go by, we look back and we realize, wow, um, maybe I should have made a mountain out of that molehill, right? Or maybe I shouldn't have made a mountain out of that molehill. Wow, God was involved. I mean, I was cursing God, but wow. I look back now and I realize, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, we, man, he was there for me. And so we reinterpret. And, and again, we, we all do this. So it's in First Chronicles, actually, where folks get in a, probably the most common answer um, to the question, why didn't God let David build the temple? Let's take a look at that. Again, 1 Chronicles, I'm going to start in, uh, I'm going to read from chapter 22, start in verse 8. And he writes, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. And as we, when we get back to 2 Samuel, it doesn't come directly to David. It comes through the prophet Nathan. So this is very, very clearly two separate things. Uh, apparently, uh, God revealed to David more information later on, but it wasn't recorded for 2 Samuel. It's recorded by the writers of the Chronicles. So David's background, well, let me keep reading. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. 
You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. So David's background of shedding blood in times of war was now given by the writer of Chronicles as God's reason for choosing Solomon instead of David. But that's not the reason recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There is no mention, zero mention of Solomon's peaceful time in history and his disposition and David's wartime, bloodthirsty reputation. No mention whatsoever, whatsoever. And we're going to see that in just a moment. We're going to, again, we're going to go back to 2 Samuel and, and see the reason at that point in time that God needed the people to understand. And again, God isn't changing his mind. David isn't telling a different story like somebody on the witness stand, you know, under pressure. Suddenly the story changes. Oh, liar, liar, pants on fire. No, that's not, that's not the situation whatsoever. It's just that given the current circumstances, the Israelites now recognize additional reasons that God didn't want David, a man of war, building his temple, and he wanted a man of peace, Solomon. Uh, strangely enough, interestingly enough, uh, shalom, meaning we, re, we, we translate it as peace, but it, it's um, all the blessings, all the, the things that God wants for us. Um, Solomon, shalom, same root in, in Hebrew. Um, so the reason given back in Second Samuel is this. Listen, we've just read this, but that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, are you to build me a house to dwell in? Again, let those highlighted words kind of play around in your head just a little bit. Something fundamentally wrong, and maybe you're going to arrive at it before I even get there. Um, there's something fundamentally wrong with this picture, these, these words that the writer so carefully by the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, um, wrote, chose these words, I mean, so, so very, very carefully. Again, absolutely no mention of David's bloody reputation or Solomon's peaceful disposition. And just a little bit of homework for you. In chapter 7, verses 1 all the way through nearly to the very end of the chapter, identical passage that you're going to find in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Identical except for a few passages. And you're going to have to just line them up side by side. I'm not going to do it right now, but, but you're going to see that, that, that when they returned from exile and, and way back during the time of David, um, God needed to say different things to them. And so when you get to the 1 Chronicles chapter 17 account that's almost identical to the 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll notice some deletions. Right? Some things are removed um, because now God has, is, is trying to say something. He's, he's saying something additional. Not, not, not that something was wrong back then, but he's, he's adding to their information. And the writers do this in this circumstance. Sometimes they add information. Sometimes they reinterpret. And this time they, they deleted a couple phrases. And, and I, I challenge you to go home. Um, there, there's your homework for the day. The difference being what God needed the Israelites to know. Right, 2 Samuel, again, is nearly identical, and the difference being that God needed the Israelites to know something more now. God had not yet revealed their need for the Messiah. Again, that whole idea of the Messiah with a capital M, like in Jesus Christ, um, God didn't reveal that. They didn't, at this point, understand their need for a Messiah because everything was going so swimmingly well you know, in their lives. But it's in this passage that we actually find the spiritual truth, the dad truth, I think that all dads need to hear Anybody really needs to hear this um, who has an, any kind of influence over young lives. Second Samuel chapter 7, I'll continue with verse 6 and 7. And I've highlighted some words. I, I, again, th these writers very purposefully do this. I, 
have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. And again, interesting little side fact here and a huge clue as to what God is trying to help King David understand. Um, maybe you're aware of this, but the tabernacle, it had no roof. It had no ceiling. Um, it was all open air. There was a, there was a tent within the, 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 the tabernacle grounds, right, that, that housed the Ark and the Covenant, but, but the temple grounds, the tabernacle grounds, there was no ceiling. There was no roof. When, you, when we hear tent, we think, of, you know, a tent, um, but really the whole tabernacle grounds and even later on the temple grounds was all open air, no roof, no ceiling. Um, why? Because it wasn't a dwelling. Right? It was a location on which to focus on God. Therefore, such a structure would always be marred had it any semblance of a shelter. God needs no shelter. He needs no roof, no kind of structure that man envisions, even dedicated to God. It's going to be inherently flawed. And we find out that eventually when God initiates it and gives instructions for it, we know that it's, it's done right. And, and the proper focus is on him. And, and kind of as we read into this, David, I, I, you get the strong impression that... that um, a little bit of pride, a little bit of, um, look what I've done for you. Look how amazing of a, of a lover of God that I am. Um, and, and, and God kind of, kind of squashes this. Again, we're going to see several reasons here. So God refuses David's offer to create the temple, to build the temple. Because it would eternally reflect man's concept of shelter, which is not a true idea about who God is. So let's continue in verse 8. That was just a little side piece, a little, little clue there what's going on. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers or, or judges um, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I took you from the pasture, he's talking to David, he was a shepherd, tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I, God, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. Verse 10. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a house of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders or judges, rulers over my people, Israel. Verses 11 and 12, I will also give you rest from all your enemies, David. The Lord, declared, the Lord declares this to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. And at this point, David had some sons back in 2 Samuel, and they end up being just abysmal. Um, and Solomon hasn't been born yet, and so this is, this is a prophecy. And I, I don't know what David's thinking right now. Well, well it says, you know, it's, I'm going to raise up your offspring. I'm not sure he understands fully what's going on. Your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom, and concluding in verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So out these verses, throughout all these verses, God is describing how he made King David great, how he made his name great, and how he will continue to be the source of David and Israel's greatness. So why does God mention all of this here? 
right? What does God's like elevation and shining a light on David um, have to do with his disagreement with David about building the temple? And of course, you're asking, what does all this have to do with dads going to church regularly? Well, let's, let's dig in just a little bit here. It all has to do with the kinds of temples that we humans, dads, we build and we pass on to our kids, right? The temples we build reflect the kingdom ruling in our hearts. And this is precisely why God demands or reminds David of all the good that he's bestowed on David, to call to David's mind that all good things come from God, not the little temples, little kingdoms that we tend to build in our image, honestly, to, for our own glory. And now that David's corrected, the temple could be built by David's son, Solomon. Well, why his son? Why not him? I think it's because David now understood the correct idea as to why temple exists, and it, and it exists to glorify God and, and not man. And I think God is, is giving David the opportunity after all the way he raised his other sons and disaster, um, he's given David this opportunity to pass on some crucial information, some eternal truth to his kids. He's like, David, I want you to make a pile, right? And this is going to be the keep it pile. All that other stuff, you, you need to get rid of all that stuff. This, this is the keep it pile. David can now pass on to his son the right ideas, who could build it with the proper godly ideas. So I ask you this morning, God, excuse me, dads, are you building God's kingdom or are you building your kingdom? And the kingdoms that we're building, the kingdoms that you're building will be passed on to your kids. Why? Because what you do matters. Dads, what you do matters. No matter what your experience, no matter what culture tells you, what you do matters, especially in spiritual matters. <clears throat> Sounds all so easy. I just, you know, got to go to church. Fairly easy thing to do. Um, but it's not. <laughs> Why is that? Well, because dads face challenges very unique to being, very unique to, to, to guys and to dads. And, and again, we all probably experience these things, but, but dads, because of their unique position in the, in the family unit, um, I think they feel them just a little bit more. And this is a bad assumption. I think it's fairly accurate assumption, um, but, it, but it's not 100% across the board. Um, first of all, dads are easily distracted by both opportunities and threats. Opportunities, whether they're positive or negative, Right? Opportunities to do something more, more than we were made to do. And this, this is kind of David's issue. He wanted to do more than God had assigned him. And again, not only, not only are we distracted by good opportunity, but we're also distracted well, by sin. Um, we get so busy, we start finding our identity in our work, in our business, and in secondary pursuits. I know a lot of guys with trucks, Dads with these beautiful, beautiful, tricked-out trucks. And, and, and a few of them I've known, and not all of them. I mean, if I were their kid, and I, and I, because I've listened to the things they've said to their kids when they bumped into the truck, I think a lot of dads come very, very close to telling their kids, this truck is more important than you. And, and, you know, and, and that's just, I'm just going to toss that out there. It's, it, it, there it is. Here's a good leadership law. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. This is helpful when facing good rather than great because there's all sorts of good things that we can do, but God calls us to great things. It's also helpful when, when negative things happen, distractions that come in the form of, of well, sin. 
And you're thinking, well, that, you know, that doesn't include me, and I just want to challenge you this morning. Um, if you are slacking off, kind of mailing it in, calling it in, uh, being a dad, um, here's what's going to happen very, very slowly. You're going to substitute your agenda for God's agenda in your life. And we all do it, but dads, listen very carefully. When your kids grow up, not only will they be more likely to keep the main thing the main thing if you are showing them by your actions that God is your Savior, God is your number one thing, God is the main thing. Not only will they understand the main thing, but they will understand who the main thing is. All by your spiritual habits, Sunday habits even. A second barrier for men's and dads is that dads are criticized when they choose to follow God's plan at any cost. Anybody who sets big goals is going to be criticized and slandered by people who have set no goals. Tithing, remaining faithful to your wife, not spending evenings with coworkers in the bars. Um, dads catch a lot of slack for this when they decide to or not to participate in these things. A lot of pushback, criticism, the secret here is to the secret to deflecting criticism is ultimately to make sure that you're building God's kingdom and not your own. Because when you're building your own kingdom, you're easily threatened. You're easily you know, given to pride. And you protect your surf, turf out of fear that you'll lose what you're building. And, and again, we ask um, are you building God's kingdom or your kingdom? Because when you're building God's kingdom, you know it's all ultimately well, God's responsibility. And all the credit is going to belong to him. So when people criticize choices that reflect a holy God, you're able to remember that God can handle this. Again, whether you're a dad, mom, student, single adult, all, all the same. Two things to remember. He will be vindicated. And ultimately, it's not about you when you're building his kingdom. That's his responsibility. And he can shoulder it. And when you land there, you have peace of mind. And for a dad, man... What a gift. And then finally, why is it so difficult being a dad? Dads are often overwhelmed by the responsibilities of being a dad. Right? If Satan can't get us distracted, sidetracked, and if slander and criticism doesn't work, he'll try to scare us. And fear leads us to become defensive. You all know this. And men who are always defensive never lead people well. And I know I've got a pretty big ego. I, I recognize that, and, and I know this, this is my thing. This is my, my thorn. This, this is, this is, I'll just tell you, that's, that's the thing I struggle with, and I, I can become just a little bit defensive. Um, listen, there are real dangers that we face, and those dangers require caution, you know, some careful consideration and thought. But we can't avoid risk and live to avoid pain. Because when we do, we miss out on the adventure of becoming the men that God called us to be. So dads, a little gem of wisdom here for you. I put this up on your mirror. Many of your greatest achievements lie just past the object of your fear. So if you can, in God's power, push past the fear. Live by faith. Live in Him. And in doing so, you're going to discover His purposes. So dad, are you building God's kingdom? Or are you building your kingdom? What have you decided to keep and what have you decided to let go of? Understanding that what you keep are really your temples. And the temples that you build, they, they express truths about God. And young people are watching 
and, and they're discovering truths that might not be truths. So as you move through your life and try to raise godly children, what you do matters. If your me pile isn't getting smaller and more refined and more focused on eternal godly things, the eternal truths, I just want you to consider the fact that you might very well be passing on to your children things and ideas about God that will do them serious harm. Temples of false worship. I want to close with a very, very powerful word of encouragement. This is from the Apostle Paul. This is in 2 Timothy, the first chapter, verses 11 and 12. And understand that he's in prison, right? He, he, he thinks he's going to be released, but we find out he's not. Um, Nero is going to judge, pass judgment against him. But he writes this, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And we read part of this earlier. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame. I'm not embarrassed. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not regretting it for a second because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. This is something I do every Father's Day. I just want to read this. These are the paradoxical commands, paradoxical commands of really of being a dad, being a leader. It says, people are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men with the smallest minds. Continue to think big anyway. People favor the underdogs, but they follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but they may attack you if you do help them. Help them anyway. Give the world your best and you, the best that you have and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. Your kids are watching. Thanks so much.